Welcome to the 227th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When a factory hog producer attempted to purchase land in a community in northeastern Iowa's Winnesheek County a few years ago, it mobilized farmers and others in the neighborhood to form a limited liability company. Initially, the main goal of the LLC was to buy land and thus keep a CAFO from being built in an environmentally vulnerable area outside of the city of Decorah in the upper Iowa River watershed. But the LLC's purchase of a particular parcel of land set in motion a series of events that eventually led to the launching of a new sustainable farming enterprise in the community. That's because one of the members of what became known as Hidden Falls Land LLC was Hannah Breckbill who, since graduating from LSP's Farm Beginnings course in 2011, has operated Humble Hands Harvest. For several years, Humble Hands has been somewhat transient, as Breckbill raised vegetables on other people's land in southeastern Minnesota and northeastern Iowa. By the time Hidden Falls Land LLC had purchased 22 acres in 2014, the beginning farmer was tired of not having a permanent home for Humble Hands Harvest. She proposed to the 14 other shareholders that instead of just renting the land out or retiring it via a government initiative like the Conservation Reserve Program, that the parcel be used as a home base for her operation. Keep in mind that Breckbill was under 30 when she became an LLC shareholder. Most of the other members of the group are quite a bit older. But the other shareholders eventually embraced Breckbill's vision for the land, and in 2017 she moved on to those 22 acres and began raising vegetables. Breckbill, along with her cousin Emily Fagan, have spent the past few years getting housing, water, electricity, high tunnels, and other infrastructure established on the land. They've also planted nut trees and added enterprises such as pasture-based livestock production. The young farmers are also in the process of buying out the remaining shares held by the LLC. Eventually, when all the shares have been transferred, Hidden Falls LLC will cease to exist, its mission accomplished. Turns out, that mission was not only to protect the community from a CAFO, but to show that an alternative model of regenerative, diverse farming is possible. Breckbill and Fagan have made Humble Hands a worker-owned cooperative, and they have plans to bring other farming partners in to manage, for example, fruit production. Breckbill wants to create a situation where when she transitions off the land, the farm enterprise will remain. Just the faces behind the food will be different. I recently visited the Hidden Falls community and talked to some of the farmers and others who were involved in this initiative. While many of the circumstances swirling around the development of Hidden Falls Land LLC and its offshoot, Humble Hands Harvest, are unique, this endeavor could serve as a model for what can be accomplished when a group of neighbors get together and envision a different future for their community. It's also a good example of the importance of responding to a crisis and then following up with a long-term plan once someone provides a little vision to fuel it. The key is to have in place the kind of farmer who can execute that plan and make that vision a reality. First, I talked to Steve McCarger, who lives next door to Humble Hands Harvest, and who helped organize the effort that bought the land it now sits on. McCarger described why he and others were so concerned when the 22-acre parcel came up for sale, and how he and members of the community went from responding to a near-term crisis to embracing a long-term vision for the land. Well, it, it's almost five years now since uh, there was an auction, a land auction, an advertised land auction at for a parcel of land at the end of our road, about six-tenths of a mile from where you and I are sitting right now. And uh, that auction 
had a number of people bidding on the property, and one of the bidders, and the one who kept coming up with the high bid, was an owner of a hog confinement operation in the southern part of our county. And the owner of the property that was being auctioned was aware of who this person was, and he stepped up and he told the auctioneer he was stopping the sale because he did not want to be in a situation where this hog confinement operator purchased this parcel at the end of our road, and then whatever he did going forward would put the neighborhood at risk in many ways and destroy the quality of life for people who live in this area. So he stopped that sale, and within a year of that uh, that particular moment, at the other end of our road, on land that's contiguous to our property, a widow of a recently deceased uh, farmer decided that she wanted to sell a parcel of about the same size, and she wanted to sell it at auction, which would set up the same potential uh, of this person coming onto our road and uh, coming onto our dead-end road and buying a parcel that could be then used for land application of manure from confinements or the actual construction of a confinement structure. And we just felt that this would destroy the quality of life for everybody in our neighborhood for miles around, not just on our road. So we had to act quickly to figure out a way to keep this auction from happening. And the way we decided to act was to go to the landowner and say to her, you establish a fair price for the property and tell us what you want per acre and we'll buy it for cash. Without really having the cash to do that, we went to her and made that proposal. She set a price of $5,500 an acre, and then we set about talking to people that we know in the community and in the neighborhood who are like-minded about the desirability of confinement, industrial-scale livestock production, and it's all of its negative consequences and externalized costs on our air and our water and our microbial environments and our landscape. We actually did raise $122,000 in about a six-week time frame, and we bought the property outright, and then we had to decide what we were going to do with the land, how we were going to organize the, the ownership structure and the uh, planning for what would happen going forward. So we, we incorporated as a limited liability corporation in the state of Iowa called Hidden Falls Land LLC, and we established a share ownership in this organization. We had 44 shares. Each share was valued at $2,750. We had 15 or 16 families that were initial investors in this operation, and we had an operating agreement with some provisions for how the land would be treated or not treated with respect to industrial agriculture, chemical agriculture, sewage sludge, and other ways in which uh, commodity-based agriculture tends to poison the land. And so, in a way, it was kind of a momentary response to a perceived crisis, which was probably a real possibility. Mm -hmm. And then once we purchased the land, we had to figure out what we were going to do. And uh, the what we were going to do involved this group of people getting together and saying, how do we want this land to be used over time? How do we want this land to be treated over time? How can we make it better uh, going forward than it is when it comes into our ownership right away? And how can we transition the land to the ownership of someone who's young and will treat the land properly and from our perspective? As I said to you before, some of it was serendipity and some of it was intentionality, but 
we were able to establish something that has true value and meaning, I think, uh, for our neighborhood and for the people who, young people who are coming onto the land to farm it. A little bit luck, uh, part of it, but also it turned out to be some intentionality involved was how Hannah Breckbill was in the community. She'd been in the community. She had an interest in farming and had an interest in doing the kind of farming that you were in, your LLC was interested in seeing here. Mm -hmm. And so that she was able to kind of be brought into that and kind of bring, then start to work on her vision a little bit. She bought into the LLC, the original Hidden Falls Land LLC. She became a shareholder Mm -hmm. and that was her ownership stake was the vehicle for her to imagine how she might go forward and own the whole piece of property and uh, and create a vision for how it would be it would be cared for and used in production agriculture uh, at a very small scale for basically sustaining the land and protecting the immediate environment. And so part of this was, uh, I think, which was very foresighted on your part is that you didn't just say these are some this is what we'd like to see and what we'd not like to see on the farm you wrote up a legal document a restricted covenant talking about this is what we don't want to see on the land yes. kind of thing yes there is a restrictive covenant and that has to be renewed every 21 years so it's not like it's it runs with the deed forever but um, it does constrain anyone who would own this land in terms of what they can do on the land or with the land as a result, it will only attract buyers who have a vision of agricultural production, which conforms with our kind of view of non-toxic, small-scale agriculture. That's something that was key at, from the very beginning and is still key to the unfolding of the LLC and the transfer of the ownership now to Hannah and her her own LLC, which is called Humble Hands Harvest. Mm-hmm. But is this a model or a version of this that could be transferred and adapted to different communities in different situations? I would say yes, emphatically. I think that um, the model of community pooling its resources to purchase land and then uh, intentionally and mindfully figuring out a way to transition the ownership of that land to somebody who's going to treat it fairly is and responsibly can be replicated anywhere. Next, I chatted with David and Perry Osliva, fruit and vegetable producers in the community who allowed Breckville to utilize some of their land before Humble Hands Harvest moved on to its permanent 22-acre home. David and Perry O were original members of the LLC and feel strongly that intergenerational connections in communities like theirs help make it possible to not only create an alternative, positive vision for agriculture, but in general, make their neighborhood a better place to live. David and Perio, we were talking about this um, situation, this very fascinating situation that you're involved with. You you were involved with uh, a few years ago when some land came up for sale. You were very concerned about a CAFO moving in and maybe some other negative things happening to the land, and so you got involved with this Hidden Falls LLC and helped Hannah Brickbill get started farming, and now her cousin Emily has started farming on the operation. And uh, kind of there's it's kind of this domino effect that's occurred, and it's, it's a really positive thing. But one of the things you had talked about was, and I get a sense from the other folks I've talked to who have been involved with this as well, is it really made sense to you as an investment in the community and an investment in not only keeping the land, I guess, beautiful and, and ecologically healthy, that type of thing, and the soil healthy and 
we're here that we're, we're here near the Upper Iowa River and keeping that clean, but also the community of people. It's kind of an investment in that in that kind of long term idea. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I think that that's people talk a lot about investments, but it's often the dollars and cents kind of investment. But this is I'm really seeing some kind of multifaceted investment in community. Again, people use the word community a lot, but it often uh, they don't have a specific idea of what is community. This seems like a really good example of doing that hard work of putting in and creating that community or, or at least, and, and, and support, it was a community already, but supporting it into the long term. So when I think of the community that's being supported by Helping Hands Harvest LLC, I think, first of all, multi-generationally, that uh, when we've been there, I think it's the third Thursday of every month, there's some kind of activity on the farm, and there are children playing and working a little bit, and experienced older folks like me who really can weed a row of onions and uh, get the work done, and then we get all together and have a meal, some singing, and a good time afterwards. So bringing different age groups in the community together, and as I age, it's just wonderful to have an opportunity to be together with parents and kids and middle-agers. So. The concept of um, having a community involved in one's farm business is inspiring to me. And we talked earlier about what, what kind of a model mm-hmm. this is and what, what can make this model work. And I express the statement that it, it takes a Hannah mm-hmm. and a person who has the vision, who, as she says, not afraid to ask for help. Mm-hmm. It makes it possible for us to invest in, in her efforts because it involves us as well. It's very satisfying. Well, one of the things, I think, Perio, you maybe had mentioned this, that it's not only an investment in the community, it's kind of an investment in in a way of creating a positive future for the area in that it's a way of creating a community that you want to grow old in. I thought that was really interesting. (laughs) It's definitely a community I want to grow old in, a community where there is access to, for me personally, to be active weeding a row of onions, even though I no longer have my own garden, where people come together on the land to celebrate and appreciate. Another real positive for me, a farm that's diverse with animals and trees and nut trees, as well as uh, vegetables. Yeah, it's a singing community, Hmm. a place where I like to sing. (laughs) Yes, yeah, there must be... Mm, 12 or 14 different birthday songs and 25 <laughs> different graces. It's, we are rich in song, and that happens partly because Hannah herself is a great song leader. But one of the things you had mentioned, David, was this idea that when, so once the, there was kind of, the community kind of responded to a crisis situation where this farm, you know, there was a real concern that it was going to be a CAFO, and so people got together, bought it, in a matter of weeks, was able to save it, quote-unquote. But then it's like, okay, now what do we do? And 
we were very fortunate in that Hannah was here in that she represented a type of farming that fit with your values. But I think you made a good point. It wasn't just that. It was that you guys, because she had farmed on your land, you were able to see up and clo- up close and personal that she is the real deal. She knows how to farm. She knows how to farm this kind of soil and this in this kind of a climate, that kind of thing. Yeah, so we witnessed the, uh, her hard work and, and her results. And I personally felt that she expressed a vision for what she wanted to do that was unique, to my ears at least, mm-hmm. and made me think, made us think uh, how we might be involved in furthering that vision. And again, I, I'd have to just say that's, that's why... If without that sort of prompting, I'm not sure how we might have been inspired to support this kind of an effort. Yeah. 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 So it took that. Yeah. So it's a kind of little combination of that vision, but also the real practical end of it. Totally. Because you know how, you guys know how how hard it can be to farm. We had the experience over many years, and we knew what it, it took to have a successful operation. And when we saw it, we could recognize it. When, when one is 80 years old, what are you going to do with your time? Your, your energy definitely is diminished. And you can spend time thinking back. But how exciting to have a young person come with ideas that are right along the line of your own ideas mm-hmm. and your own values and invite you to participate. It's a pretty exciting thing. And you've used the term before, but it's a gift. Mm. <laughs> yeah, because an outsider might just see it as uh, a gift that you have oh. provided to Hannah. No. <laughs> no. no, it's totally a gift to us. Mm. We're appreciative of it, of that opportunity. Finally, I spent some time on Humble Hands Harvest. Hannah Breckbill and Emily Fagan took time off from preparing for the upcoming growing season to talk about why it's important to not only offer up an alternative vision to the corn, bean, CAFO machine, but to have innovative beginning farmers like themselves available in the community who can actually put that vision into practice. Emily, you had talked a little bit about this idea of you came to this area and you had farmed in other areas and you, through Hannah, uh, your second cousin here, were able to meet folks in the area. But I think that that's important that it wasn't just Hannah talking about it, but there's like somebody like you who comes into the area. You've been working for other farmers in the area, but that there was that people could, when they talk about a vision, they can see some practicality to it a little bit, a little bit, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, everybody wants to hear nice words about happy things that could happen, but in order for them to like really invest in it and be- believe in it, they have to see that it's happening and in our cases, see that both of us knew how to do it before we started and had the necessary skills, I guess, to put the vision into practice. Do you feel there's a fairly strong community of other farmers, not just young farmers, but other farmers who are doing direct marketing, doing this kind of thing as kind of a network type support system? Yeah, we, I feel like we have it pretty good here. There's a, we get together almost every month, mostly vegetable farmers, but all kinds of non-row crop type farmers and would share our ideas and talk about what was good and what was bad about our seasons and visit each other's farms. Um, yeah, there's a lot of knowledge sharing that happens. 
it is interesting how we have this community, this great community of other kind of alternative farmers, you might say. But, you know, in terms of like the amount of land in in our in our region, this we we're in charge of a minuscule amount of it, you know. And so, you know, just thinking about, oh, wow, when like within a mile of me, there are three farms that are doing, you know, good things, um, direct market things like that'll be that'll be a culture shift. That'll be amazing. When this these group of folks got together and bought this land, it was a little bit of a crisis situation because they were concerned about it becoming a CAFO or whatever. And when you were able to enter that conversation, Hannah, you were able to not only talk about something that was more of a working lands concept of kind of stewarding this land, but you were, I wouldn't say you were going against, there was a little pushback in that, well, why don't we just do it CRP, set aside, but... Talk a little bit about how you, it sounds like you had to maybe make the argument that there is this future that isn't it isn't the two extremes factory farm or just have it in planted to grass and put it in a long term contract type thing. So you kind of had to a little bit make that argument a bit. Right. I knew that if I was going to be able to farm this land in a you know reasonable number of years when I was ready to do it, it would have to not be in CRP. I felt weird pushing back against the CRP idea, but it. I don't need a lot of land to be able to make an economically viable farm that uses more than even just my labor, you know, uses, you know, three of us in a season or or more. The idea that there could be more farmers on the land is also a really, like, foreign concept to a lot of people. Uh, People see 20 acres and they think, oh, that's like a tiny part of a, a farm, but this this place is going to be our lives, you know, and and more than more than even two of us, you know. I, I like how you said this, Hannah. That as soon as you kind of got onto this land, you started thinking of an exit strategy. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you're doing that is through this trying to create a cooperative type model. Talk a little bit about that and why that, because that is one of the reasons we are in a crisis right now in rural America. Is nobody thought about an exit strategy. Yeah. You're 31 and you're already thinking of an exit strategy, which some people would say, "Wow, you know." But that is really, boy. That's talk about thinking about the community. You obviously love this community and you want to see it continue, and you love farming and you want to see some other people have these the opportunities that you've had. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, I'm planting trees that I expect to live longer than me. And so I want to I want to be able to be sure that there's a way for those trees to stay taken care of and not revert back to a cornfield or something. Um, yeah, so, so forming the cooperative, just kind of creating a kind of division of our business so that so that my investment um, in this farm can be repaid. Um, if I'm if I'm going to leave it, but it's not the entire farm that has to be repaid if just I am going to leave it, uh, and so that kind of gives gives a, a means for a new farmer to come in. You know, hopefully in the next couple of years we'll have we'll have someone else joining us, and then you know maybe in twenty years um, I'll be I'll be wanting to work less or something, and and there'll be a another person to come and start taking my place. Mm-hmm. It feels really good knowing that there's a way for our lives to change and for this farm to keep going. I mean, we put in a lot of time and love to this spot, and it doesn't feel good to not think about what will happen when we're not here. This is is a great story. I think I'm really excited about it. And But 
I always am a little concerned about great stories that are such great stories that they're mm-hmm. unique. <laughs> yeah. So do you think this is a model or a version of this? I mean, every community would have to adapt it to their own situation. It could be a, to, could be transferred to other communities or, or at least the ideas cherry-picked and used in other communities. I think definitely this is a very unique situation, but the basics, like parts of it, the being like the group of people that want to invest and want to protect the land and the people with vision who want to do something really nice. Those are everywhere. The way that they organize themselves and the way that they come together will always be different, but I think that any anybody could do it. That's a good point. You're, you're always going to have those two groups of people somewhere right, right. if you can find them somehow. But... Yeah, and it's just a matter of getting those groups of people connected and, and connected to the right piece of land that, that kind of works um, for all parties. So there is, there's definitely always going to be kind of serendipity involved, but also I think that it's a totally re- replicable thing. It takes, it takes kind of sacrifice or like willingness to risk a little bit on all sides. Yeah, but these are the times for that. We, we need a change. What would you tell a beginning farmer who maybe, uh, is there some ideas, some tips or whatever that you would, to, to try to get, to pull together something like this or to, obviously they're not doing it on their own, but to kind of reach out to folks and uh, get something like similar to this, and uh, I guess an alternative land access strategy going in, in an area that they want to farm in? I guess the way to do it is to know the people in your community and be in touch with them enough to know if they would be receptive to something like this and who who of all the people around might be and just being connected enough to know to like begin pulling people together. I think a key part of our situation was that I kind of had already demonstrated commitment to Decora and so people knew I was here to stay. And that, that's a really helpful thing. Um, people aren't just going to invest in whoever walks by. Yeah, putting down some roots, even if it means having to live outside of a city where all your community is or whatever, is an important step. For more on this story, see the number one 2019 edition of the Land Stewardship Letter at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you use. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSB. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 